Where'd you go, Leaner? Where's, oh, there you are. <laughs> I was thinking about when you were singing that song about he is no fool, and we're studying this, the book of Acts right now in chapter 2. And I thought, I'm sure that people said to these people, you are being foolish. You are wasting your life. You are wasting your resources. You are wasting your time. What are you doing hanging around in the temple courts every day? And what's going on? And I'm sure that if you're relatively new to the Christian faith, if you've come to a point where you've trusted Jesus Christ and your friends haven't, and I know that's what happened in my life, uh, they thought I was nuts. I'm sure people thought Stanley Tam was nuts. And I heard some good brother over here say amen when they gave away 100%. That was great. But uh, can you imagine? That's, that's insane. You don't do that. That's not what the American dream says. You get $27 million, you pass it on to your kids. Sorry, kids, you're not getting any of my money because uh, <laughs> there won't be any. We're right now in a, in, a, in a series in the book of Acts, and it's called The Church on Fire. Understanding what happened to them in, you know, 2,000 years ago will help us to understand how can we get our lives transformed in this culture. And I think some of the problems that they faced in their culture, we're going to see later on in the months that come as we go through the book of Acts, some of the things that they faced are very similar to what the things we face. And we think, oh, that was so simple. Everything was so cut and dry. No way. It was tough then, and it's tough now. It's tough to be a follower of Jesus in these days. And we've been looking in the past few weeks at a passage of Scripture which is just radical. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and it's these brand new Christians, these 3,000 people, and then it says at the very end in this passage we're looking at in, uh, verses, uh, in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number every day, so every day they were getting bigger than that. I don't know how large this whole gathering was, but it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We saw that they were transformed. I mean, there was something that happened to them that was different. They were different people as a result of being followers of Jesus. I want to read through this passage. We've been reading it every week. I want to focus this week again in the, the last uh, five verses, but I, I want to read it all in its entirety just to kind of let you know where we're going this week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They as the new followers of Christ, just baby Christians, just days old in the faith. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Like I said, we're going to spend the majority of our time today on the last five verses or that principle that's happened there. Something happened that changed these people, excuse me, from being uh, looking at their money and their possessions as just their own and they shared it with each other. That's, that's radical. It's just as radical then as it is now. Don't, don't think, oh, no big deal then. No, your stuff is your stuff. It doesn't matter when your stuff is your stuff. It's you're still your stuff. That was the most profound thing I think I've ever said. Um, <laughs> but it's still, if, if you didn't have much stuff, you still, it was your stuff. And so these people, maybe they didn't have much by today's standards, 
but they still would have wrestled with materialism or holding on to that just as much as we would have. Now, this, so this week we're going to, uh, and next week also, next week I'm going to kind of summarize what it means to be living in the, in the body and especially in regard to how to use your stuff and everything you have to be part of the body of Christ. That's what's going to happen at the retreat Sunday morning when, when I speak. The, uh, t- today we're kind of finishing on this issue of what's a biblical understanding of money and possessions. What's a biblical understanding of money and possessions? Rich people have an advantage over us. And I say us because most people in this room wouldn't consider themselves rich. However, if you just back up here, uh, almost, I'd say almost everyone in this room is rich by world standards. If you look at the world, most of the people, if not all the people in this room, are in better financial shape than most of the people in the world. So in some of when we look at rich, I'm not rich. Well, maybe you are. Even, even what you consider to be poor in this day and age would be rich by many, by many standards. Listen to what some rich people have had to say about their riches. Rockefeller, John Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt, the railroad king, said, Take the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, the self-made millionaire on the fur trading industry, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, the guy who invented the you know, Ford automobile, invented the uh, uh, assembly line and the way of quickly making automobiles, said, after he had accumulated his wealth, wealth and riches, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Carnegie said, and this is great, Andrew Carnegie, or Carnegie, however you pronounce it, said, Millionaires seldom smile. I know many of you are saying, I know, but I could, I could try that. <laughs> I think I could be one of the exceptions. I could smile. Give me a million dollars and we'll try it. <laughs> the only thing that rich people know that the rest of us don't is they know for sure that riches don't satisfy. They know it. I used to teach uh, in, in uh, Eden Prairie. It's pretty wealthy out there. It, it, you know, people usually don't struggle with finances out in Eden Prairie. There are some, but not many. And I, they were messed up. These people were just as messed up as you and I are messed up. Riches do not satisfy. The great American lie is that if you're rich, you will be happy. It is not true. It is not true. It is why I'm opposed to the lottery more than anything else. Because it gives me this, this understanding that, oh, if I just could win, I'd be happy. I'll just keep playing. Why? It's like, it's like you're giving your offering every week at the, at the SA. Matter of fact, David and I just went to a movie. And afterwards, we were, <laughs> we were at this SA. And there was this lady in front of us. And she, she goes, well, let's see. I, I guess I'll take one of those. Those are scratch things or whatever. And then she said, well, I'll take one of those too. And, Okay, I'll take one of those. And she takes three of them. And so then afterwards, I was kind of messing with the, <laughs> messing with the clerk. And I had, I don't know, we got a couple pops and a, and a hot dog or something. And I come up there and go, maybe I'll, take, maybe I'll take one of those. I said, oh, that's right. I'm good at math. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lottery is a poor tax for those who are bad at math is the reality. But, but it also it just communicates that that will satisfy me. It's a lie. Please believe me. It's a lie. It will not satisfy you. 
It will take you out. It will make you like these people who are wealthy and are completely unhappy. It's a lie. Now, I think you can be wealthy and happy, but it's hard. Jesus said, it's hard as putting a camel through an eye of a needle. You guys, you really got to push. Because he says, all, with, the thing, with God, all things are possible. But don't make it your life's goal to be rich so that you'll just have your plenty. You will not be satisfied. Today, I got two BQs. If you've been around me long enough, you know that I like these things called BQs, big questions. Questions I love to ask. I love to always be thinking about questions. And if you look at this passage and you say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and all of a sudden they, they're in this temple court, these 3,000 some people, and the apostles all over the place holding seminars on different things and who knows what, and it, it just amazing amounts of things are happening, and all of a sudden they have it in their minds to give away their possessions. I'm, I'm, the first thing is, what kind of principles, the first BQ I have is, what kind of principles were they learning that changed them in such a way? What things from the Bible were they learning that they had a different view of money and possessions than your normal guy, your normal gal? Secondly, what, and this morning I want to talk very practically, what practically does this mean for me? What practically does this mean? All right, I want to talk about four principles, and I'm very indebted to this book. Uh, remember, I, I lifted this book up last year. If you weren't here, I'd, I'd commend this little book to you. It's little, it's tiny, it's 88 pages. I love 88-page books. Um, I'm a slow reader. So um, it's called The Treasure P Principle by Randy Alcorn. And I'm indebted to him this morning again. I, have I went to a conference that he was speaking at. And so Hamlet and I, and I've got a lot of things that are uh, from his, that, that time, and just processing through some of the things that he was saying to us last February, just this few, a month ago. And uh, I just want to share with you some of them. I've kind of boiled down his book and a few other things that he said. Four principles that I think they learned sitting there, the, the apostles taught them four things, and I think when they got these four things, at least these four things, Alcorn has about eight, but we don't have that much time this morning, boil them down to four. Four principles that if you, if, you, if you hold them, if you grasp them, and if you accept them into your life, it will change your view of possessions and money. If you reject them, you will be a slave. That's the default in our culture, is to be a slave to possessions and money. That's your choices. First principle. Before I give the first principle, I want to give you an analogy. Let's just say you own a small business. Uh, you know, a business has about 10 employees or something. And your business is, you have this eBay thing. You, you have eBay, you know, and you're selling things on eBay. And every day you're shipping, you're shipping things out. And a FedEx guy comes to your door every day and he grabs stuff for 20 years. After 20 years... Just, just every analogy breaks down, so just let this one work for you. Um, <clears throat> after 20 years, you realize that none of the stuff that you've been shipping is, is got to its recipients. I know you get negative feedback on eBay, but just let it work for right now. Just say for whatever reason it, it worked. And you were selling goods like crazy. And the FedEx guy comes to, the, comes to you to get more packages, and you said, wait a minute, I, I, I've got some complaints here. In the last 20 years, no one has received their package. And he, he, the FedEx guy looks at you and goes, Oh, you wanted me to bring these to other people? And you're saying, well, well, yeah, yeah. I gave you the package. It had the address of the person on there. And then you took the package and you gave it to someone else. And he says, oh, no, no, I just kept all that stuff. And you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute here now, wait a minute here now. I, I, I took the package and I gave it to you and you kept the stuff? 
And he says, well, if you, if you didn't want me to have it, why did you give it to me? And you're thinking, you're the FedEx guy. <laughs> you take the stuff and you bring it to the other person. Principle number one is God owns everything, and I'm just the FedEx guy. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God owns everything. You own nothing. Say that after me. I own nothing. I own nothing. I own nothing. I'm not even a co-owner. I don't see my name here. The earth, and a little bit of it is Steve's, is the Lord's. When you know, the, the American Indians had it right. When the, when the white man came and said, you know what, we'll give you money for this land, they kind of went, <coughs> sure, give us money, what do we care? You don't, can't own land. Well, kind of can, and so the Indians lost out on that one. But they... <laughs> But you really can't. How can you own land? How can you own land? How can I own? I don't own land. It's going to be here long after I do if the Lord doesn't come back. I don't own this land. All possessions are God's. I'm not even a co-owner. I'm, I'm just a borrower, or to better use it, I'm a manager. I'm a steward. I'm a steward of God's resources. If you get this principle right, it'll change everything. If you look at your stuff as your stuff, then, oh, God wants, me, God wants, to, have some of, God wants to have some of my stuff. If you look at it as a, it's all God's stuff, and am I managing it correctly, it'll, it flips it upside down. All stuff is God's stuff. Even people are God's stuff. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What was the price? Christ. You're bought and paid for. You don't even own you. Therefore, honor God with your body. The first principle is, is God owns everything, and I am just the FedEx guy or gal, whatever you want to put there. We need a good gender-neutral word here. Two, second thing, your heart will always go where your money goes. Your heart will always go. We read this passage last week, Matthew 6, where Jesus said, and I'm sure that these apostles were teaching these young, brand new believers in Jesus this passage, even though, of course, this gospel wasn't written yet, but they knew well, they were sitting there, they knew this what Jesus was saying. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves. Remember we talked about that being treasure for yourselves or hoard for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm not, I'm not the one who made this up. Jesus says this. It says, Where your treasure is, your heart's there. You put your time, your talent, and your treasure, your money into things, and your heart is there. And it's a flip thing. Where your heart is, is where your money will be. Then he goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, and what this means is, this goodness is single. The, the real word is, if your eyes are single, 
bad would be double. If you're seeing double vision, your whole body will fill with darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will, either he will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have double vision. You cannot have it both ways. Let that go before you leave the door. Don't think, ah, you know what? I'm going to be the first person in history that can really love money and love God. I'm going to prove to you. Let me just save you the pain. Jesus said you can't do it. You, there's room in your heart for one God and only one God. No one can serve two masters. Augustine has said, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Stop right there. What he's saying is, you want to know what you really love? Look at your checkbook. Look at your bank statements. What is it that I really love? That's where, that's where my pleasure is, is my treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. If you treasure, if you treasure Christ, if you treasure him, he will become your happiness. If you treasure stuff, that moth and rust and thieves come in and steal, if you treasure that, or even your own life, you will be bummed. Third principle. Third principle is heaven, not earth, is my home. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8 says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. At home with the Lord. Where's home? Home is not here. This is like Larry Norman. None of you know who Larry Norman is, but he was one of the first rock... There we go. There we go. One of the first rockers, Christian rockers. There we go. He had an album called Only Visiting This Planet. What a great album. Of course, by today's standards, he was terrible. But uh, <laughs> back in the 80s, man, that's all we had to listen to was Bang Your Head on a Larry Norman song. Uh, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Now, that's huge. Last week we talked about why is it that Christians despair in this life. And we said, it's because if that speaker were all my stuff and my treasures and all the things on this earth, as, I'm, as I get older, I'm backing away from my treasure. And it starts to become further and further out of reach. And now I'm despairing because I'm leaving my treasure behind. But if this speaker over here were my treasure, and that's, we will dance on the streets that were golden, does that not rock or what? Not necessarily a song, but the concept we will dance on the streets on the golden, the glorious bride and the great son of man. I hate dancing, but I will love it that day. When the streets are golden, and I know the Lord will, and maybe the new body comes with dancing shoes or something, I don't know, but I will love it. And there's this picture of us dancing. 
And if that's what you're living for, as you're going towards that, you're getting more and more excited. Man, I'm going to turn 40 this year. I know, I never thought I'd even say that. It's like, you know, it used to say, never trust anybody over 30. That's now 50 for me. I, I keep moving this back. And, and uh, I'm at the point now where people are old when they're dead. You don't, I don't say, <laughs> they're old. Because I'm getting on that side. When, you, when you're 40 plus one day, you're actually closer to 60 than 20. Anyway. Most people in this room, that doesn't matter to, but a friend of mine made sure he told me that before my birthday so I could be despairing of this the whole time. <laughs> I am going to die. I promise you. I don't know when. I don't know when. None of us knows when. But I've just decided that, you know what? I'm going to enjoy that. My body already, I've already had one back surgery and who knows what else is coming down the road. I'm going to enjoy that because I've decided that I'm going to start looking at that thing. I'm going to start looking at what's ahead. My citizenship is not here. I'm just visiting this planet. My real hope is there. My real hope in what is coming. Let me carry that a little further. Let's just say it was 1865. And, and you lived, you were a northern state's resident. Say you lived in New York. And you were, for whatever reason, decided to live in, in uh, uh, give me a southern state, Georgia. You were living in Georgia. It's 1865. And because you're a northerner, you're privy to the knowledge that very soon the north is going to win the war. It's a, it's a, it's a no-brainer. You can just see the writing on the wall. The north is going to win the war. While you're in the South, you've accumulated huge quantities of Confederate money. Now, you got this Confederate money, and you've got this knowledge that no one else yet knows, but you've got this knowledge that the war is going to come to an end. I'll give you two guesses. The first doesn't count how much that money's worth after the day after the war ends. Anyone? El Zipo. You speak Spanish. Good. <laughs> nothing. This is worth nothing. What are you going to do with your currency? You know the war is going to end. Well, you're going to trade it in. You're going to trade it in for, for a currency that matters, right? You're going to get currency from the North or the United States of America. You're going to get that money in the right thing. Hello? Jesus says, don't, don't, don't treasure things on this earth that will not last. The war is going to, I, I can tell you right now, the war is, we've won. But you're, you're in the South right now. So why are you collecting Confederate currency? Why am I collecting Confederate currency? That is stupid. Jesus said to, Jesus said to hoard things up in heaven where moth and rust and thieves do not come, why? Because it's stupid not to. Fourth thing, and the last thing. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Biblically, giving is the only... Giving away, having an open hand, is the only antidote to materialism. Look at 1 Timothy 
chapter 6. We're going to look at 6 through 10, then, then we'll skip over to 17 through 19. Timothy, or Paul is teaching his, his mentee, Timothy. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach him about money and possessions. And he's also trying to help him to help people who are wealthy. And he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. If you don't like how Jesus says it, like how Paul says it. He says, you will. This is what will happen. Guaranteeing it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me just stop right there. A lot of you in this room are college students. And you're, you're in la-la land right now because you're like, I don't have any money. What am I listening to this guy for? You can just be as consumed by money when you don't have it. Maybe even more so than when you have too much of it. So hear this. Hear this. Then he goes on, Paul goes on in verse 17 to say, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Why not trust wealth? It's uncertain. Could be here, could be gone. Uh, your currency could be worth nothing. You, start, you see stock markets go like this. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, that's not uncertain, that's for sure, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So stuff is to be enjoyed. I like stuff. Stuff is good stuff, but it's to be enjoyed and not worshipped and not hoped in. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why? Because it's the only antidote to materialism. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You want to really live? You want to live maximum? You want to be a hedonist? You want to get as much pleasure out of life as you can? Give away your life. Give away your stuff. Give away your money. You will have life, Paul says, that is truly life. Follow Christ. Now, let me close uh, with uh, some just real practical stuff. That's the second BQ. What does this practically mean? Practically, what does it mean to, to not hold on to your possessions? Some of you are sitting here, and I, I can kind of tell by your expression that uh, I'm, I'm hitting home on this. And I know. I know. I had advance warning. I knew I was going to talk about this. So this is a hard topic. It is a hard topic. In our culture, it is a hard topic. Some of you right now, God is convicting that you're holding on to stuff like this. And God says, first of all, it's not your stuff. So let go, because it's my stuff. And then ask me constantly, what, what do I want to happen with my stuff? If you get there, you're, you're a million miles ahead of most people. What does it practically mean? In the Old Testament, there was a thing called the tithe. The tithe was 10% of your income. And, and what it is, they would take this tithe and it would support the ministries of the temple and other the Levites who were the priests at that time and the whole thing. Now, in the New Testament, the tithe is not mentioned, uh, except when Jesus criticizes people for, oh, sure, you give 10%, but you don't do anything else. You don't give your heart. I don't believe in a New Testament tithe. Uh, personally, I know that, that you may, you may, and I think that's a good thing. 
Randy Elkhorn kind of says it the way I believe it. I think the tithe is like training wheels for giving. The tithe is a place in the Old Testament, if you didn't give your 10% of your income to the, the Lord in some capacity, whether it was giving to the poor, giving to the church, giving to, to people in need, whatever, uh, the Bible actually calls it robbing God. You're robbing God, it says in, in Malachi, or like Erno likes to say, the Italian prophet Malachi. He says, you're robbing God. Now, I don't, I don't believe in the New Testament where, uh, and this is controversial, but I don't believe that we're under a tithe anymore. I don't, I don't think that's what we're under. Uh, I think it's actually, uh, we're at a point where you just, the, the question is not, should I give 10%? The question in the New Testament is, is, if God owns everything, how much should I keep? I give 100%. It's not 10%. Give 100%. And I just figured out, well, some of this, Lord, we've decided this goes towards rent. This goes towards food. This goes towards the church. And this goes towards uh, a car payment or whatever. You, you have to decide what the Lord would have you do. It's 100% in the New Testament. That's the way I understand it. So the question then is not do I give 10%, which is kind of like um, training wheels for giving. I think it's a... However... I've always used that as, and personally, I've used that as a good place to kind of say, am I starting there? I mean, is that, that's what they did in the Old Testament. Am I, am I at least starting there? Now, when you come to possessions, Hamlet this week told me something that I wanted to pass on to you. He said, uh, you should never own anything that you're not willing to borrow. I'd even add to that. You're not willing to, under the right circumstances, give away. Do I own anything that I'm not under the right circumstances. Now, I'm talking uh, 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 possessions here, not relationships, so don't be giving away your spouses or stuff. But I <laughs> guess it's really bad to say I own my spouse too, but anyway. Uh, <clears throat> do I own anything that I'm not willing to, to, to borrow or give up in the right circumstances? Remember, it's, it's God's stuff. you got to okay it with God. Is, is God leading you to, to give something, some money, or whatever. Folks, I say this not because I'm your pastor and uh, we have a huge deficit or anything. We don't. We don't. We're okay. I'm not saying that so that the church gets your money. Give to, give, there's five churches along here. There's countless missionaries. There's tons of places to give your money. I'm not saying this out of self-interest. I'm saying this to set you free. I've seen two things take people out of the Christian life faster than anything. Number one, and it is above money, is relationships. Fall in love with someone who doesn't love Jesus. That's the number one way you can be taken out of Christian life. Number two is a love for stuff. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we just want to be set free. We want to be set free from things that would easily hinder us and would cause us to stumble. Lord, just even in my own life, I know that money has always been a struggle. Always been a struggle. And Lord, at the same time, uh, just coming through some of these principles early on in my Christian experience, that you own everything and I'm just your manager has really helped. And I'm not, it doesn't become easy then. In fact, it, I think it becomes harder because you have to make tough decisions on what you think you want us to do with our money. So God, I pray for that. 
I know that this morning, this is an unsettling message. This is a hard message to hear. But God, I just pray that, that even today, by your spirit, you give us the courage to set things the way they should be so that 30, 40 years down the road, we aren't down a path that we end up just like these rich millionaires who say, if I could just go back and be a mechanic, I'd be happy. Lord, and some people in this room, you're going to call to be filthy rich. And that's a good thing. But Lord, your word says to command those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And God, there's nothing wrong with being rich with your stuff. But God, would people even in this room, not this morning, put hope in it? We would, would we give up our lives? Would we give up our stuff? Would we give up everything, God, for you? And in so doing, find out that our soul is satisfied more than anything could ever satisfy us. May we be looking ahead at the end of life and in spending eternity with you on those days when, when we will dance in the streets that are golden, Lord, and not be caught up in some of the light and momentary troubles that we have here. God, by your spirit, I pray even in this room now that people would come to points where they'd make decisions, decisions to trust you, God, in, in multiple ways. Maybe there are people here this morning who for the first time in their lives want to trust you as their Savior and their Lord, and they want to be bought at a price, and the price was Christ on that cross. And I pray that right now, right here, even as I'm speaking, that they're quietly in their heart asking you to be their sin bearer, asking you to be their Savior. And, and making a commitment in their hearts to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to give up everything if necessary to follow you. And others of us, Lord, you're calling us to really rethink what it means to be the body with each other. How do we look like that Acts 2 passage and be authentic and, and never let anyone go in need? God, teach us what that means. By your spirit, we ask you'd come in Jesus' name.